0: from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges, your new host of Government Matters. I'm looking forward to the conversations, analysis, and developments we'll cover in the world of federal government. Let's get started. President Biden plans to nominate Biniam Gabray to lead the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, Federal News Network reports, Gabray is a former appointee from the Obama administration for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. If the Senate confirms him, Gabray would face challenges at OFPP, such as hiring more acquisition professionals. The White House says unvaccinated federal workers who refuse COVID-19 testing will face disciplinary action, political reports. The restrictions that the White House rolled out last week are considered federal workplace policy. Which allows for discipline for those who refuse testing. The administration continues to collect data on federal employee vaccination status. Acting U.S. Undersecretary James Gertz will retire this month from government service. Gertz called it a quote extremely difficult decision. The Senate has not confirmed the White House's top nominees for the Navy, and the White House has not yet announced a replacement for Gertz. Federal agencies spend more than $61 billion from contracts to respond to the pandemic, but those agencies canceled $4 billion of contract obligations. Marie Mack is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office. GAO has a new report on COVID-19 contracts. Marie, welcome. Thanks for having me today. So because of the pandemic, there was a substantial rise in the number of contracts awarded to vendors that didn't have prior experience working with the federal government. How big of a rise in that did we see in calendar year 2020?
2: Well, just a little bit of broad context when it comes to the significance of federal contracting. As you mentioned, um, at the end of May, there's been over 61 billion in contract obligations just in response to COVID-19. Just to put that in perspective, it is more than seven times what was reported in terms of contract obligations for the response of hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria combined back in 2017. So there's been a lot of money being spent.
1: So what impact did it have, Marie, on um, the process, given that you had so many vendors that had never worked with the federal government before?
2: I think when it comes to agents um, contractors that haven't worked with the federal government, we did hear from some of the selected agencies in our review. That one of the challenges they experienced in part due to the magnitude of the pandemic was they were working with agencies that working with vendors that they had not previously worked with and buying supplies and services that they don't typically buy, for example. While FEMA and US Army Corps of of Engineers have extensive disaster contracting experience, these agencies typically aren't buying personal protective equipment or building alternative care facilities as part of their typical mission. And the other point is that agencies did award about five times as many contracts to vendors without prior federal contracting experience in response to the pandemic as compared to prior calendar years. And hopefully some of these contractors will continue to work with the federal agencies in the future. But that's just one challenge out of several.
1: So how did it go as far as evaluating new vendors, right? Because there's tremendous pressure to get these products and services out very quickly during an emergency right
2: and again to lay a little bit of context contracting officers at the selected agencies identify beyond just working with new vendors the lack of contracting personnel for the volume of the awards working with vendors new to federal contracting limited time frames to make awards for example and then as i mentioned earlier um, buying supplies and services that the agencies typically do not buy But ultimately, one of the ways contracting officers can address some of these types of challenges and risks that they face during an emergency when they're doing contracting, particularly of working with vendors that they haven't worked with before, is this process of responsibility determination. And that is a required step where contracting officers determine if the prospective vendor, for example, has adequate financial resources to perform, the contract has a satisfactory performance record and is able to comply with the proposed delivery and performance schedules. To make this determination, contracting officers that we spoke with use a variety of resources. They use like government databases, private sector resources, assistance from federal agent, other federal agencies, or even their own agency-created resources to assess these prospective vendors. However, some of the organizations, our major finding was that some of these organizations had limitations in that they didn't have access to, or they were not aware of the resources available to them, or didn't have any agency-specific guidance or training to leverage when it came to assessing these prospective vendors during this emergency.
1: So how do you think the pandemic has reshaped some of the federal agencies in working with medical-related contractors? You know, you, you said that we've been working with people that we've never worked with before and products that we've never had to use before. So how does that reshape the agency?
2: Well, hopefully that the agencies have reached out to a lot of these new, a lot of these are on contract to vendors who have not had experience. And hopefully these contractors will continue to work with the federal agencies in the future. But it's important to have some of the challenges that they faced be addressed. For instance, even from a government-wide perspective, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, which is under OMB, they provide overall direction for procurement policies, regulations, and procedures. And they obviously also promote economy, efficiency, and effectiveness in acquisition processes. This office had issued an emergency acquisition guide that outlines a number of management and operational best practices that agencies should consider when during an emergency. But the biggest problem was with this guide was it did not address the obstacles that contracting officers indicated to us related to assessing these prospective vendors under urgent timeframes and working with new vendors. So that guide we believe needs to be updated to continue engaging these vendors who don't typically work with government. And it wasn't updated since 2011, so many of the resources that are in that guide aren't even active or operational anymore.
1: So do you you think now that agencies, and to a certain extent vendors, are better prepared to deal with national emergencies when it comes to contracting and procurement?
2: If I think the experience of anything has taught us that we need to have guidance in place, training in place. We need to have some of these types of things in terms of updated uh, availability. Contracting official uh, um, officers need to be able to know what's available to them to be able to address that responsibility determination. And if they address those recommendations we made in this report, that'll be a big step in that direction.
1: Okay, Marie, thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you. You can find a link to the report at govmatters.tv/resources. Coming next, increasing use of non-traditional contracting methods. Straight ahead on government matters, asking if that's a good thing. You're watching WJLA 24/7 News. Agencies use OTAs, or Other Transaction Authority contracts, for $12.5 billion in pandemic spending. The Departments of Defense, Health and Human Services, and Homeland Security use OTAs to stay flexible and respond quickly. But what about transparency and accountability? Jason Knudsen is Vice President of Product Development at Second Front Systems. He's former Chief of Staff to the Chief of Naval Operations, Rapid Innovation Cell, He's writing about OTAs with co authors Stan Soloway and Vincent Warbell for IBM. Jason, welcome.
0: Thanks, Mimi. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: When we say that OTAs are non traditional contracting methods, what are we talking about? How non traditional are they?
0: Right. So, the traditional method we're referring to is the federal acquisition requirements. Um, and OTAs came out around 1958 uh, under NASA. In response to the launch of Sputnik to try to uh, get after the space race. And we're a core part of uh, NASA achieving uh, dominance in the space race over uh, the former USSR. Um, so these other transactions uh, were extended in the early 90s to DARPA and uh, all the way into 2015, and, and later were expanded in their authority um, to. Move into production and, and other um, types of activities, including uh, having preference for S and and prototype programs. Um, so they are uh, a separate but equal authority for the federal acquisition requirements under U.S. Code, um, and so.
1: But how different are they from the regular acquisition method?
0: so the the primary difference is that the uh federal the federal acquisition requirements are a series of around 3,000 pages of regulations and the otas are just a couple paragraphs in a statute so they're very lightweight they offer a lot of flexibility um and the biggest difference is they do require a little bit additional um knowledge on how to execute them uh, as they are closer to a commercial contract than a federal contract.
1: So then, Jason, if, they're, if OTAs are faster and simpler, why don't we just use them for all federal contracting?
0: Well, that's a good answer, and that's a good question. Uh, primarily, is the authorities for, especially uh, Department of Defense, are restricted currently by law to prototypes and then the follow-on authority to production for a successful prototype. Um, OTAs aren't perfect for everything. Uh, the federal acquisition requirements are much better at uh, procuring things like uh, supplies or, or procuring large uh, large groups of tanks or um, or aircraft or ships. OTAs really excel when dealing with non-traditional uh, companies and in the research development and prototyping realm.
1: But then how do you ensure the principles of good contracting, namely competition, accountability, transparency? Do you still get that with an OTA?
0: You absolutely do. So that was the primary question that we looked at in our brief paper was not, should we use FAR over OTAs, but do OTAs meet the basic tenets of public procurement? So we looked at competition, transparency and accountability intellectual property rights, disputes and protests, and socioeconomic preferences and diversity. And we did interviews with dozens of senior acquisition professionals. We looked over a subset of OTAs, um, and we found that uh, competition was met, transparent accountability was met, all the other basic tenants of procurement were met, but not in the same way that a, um, a FAR contract might meet them. Um, a lot of times you meet them in a way that a commercial contract would meet them. But at the end of the day, the basic tenets of public procurements were met both in FAR contracts and in OTAs.
1: So tell me about how OTAs were used for COVID-19 and the rollout of the vaccine.
0: Right, so the story of COVID-19 and Operation Workney started back in the 1990s and before, um, before the actual COVID-19 vaccine where some of the initial research on mRNA vaccines was sponsored through DARPA via OTAs. Um, When COVID-19 hit, the uh, National Institute for Health partnered with Department of Defense and several other agencies to stand up Operation Warp Speed. Um, And they used other transaction authorities, um, heavily leveraging Army Contracting Command's experience with OTAs to do the prototyping across multiple um, research and development companies.
1: So what are your recommendations then, Jason, for agencies to use OTAs effectively across the board? What do they need to do to really take advantage of this contracting method?
0: Well, primarily we need to understand that federal acquisition requirements and OTAs are separate and distinct authorities under the federal laws. And so it's not sufficient to go and say that because you have experience in a FAR contracts that you'll have experience in OTAs. Um, We need to remove this this grounding bias that we must first understand FAR in order to do OTAs. And by doing that, we are able to access a larger workforce. We're able to train that workforce in commercial contracts, commercial IP rights, and really access the true flexibility of, of OTAs. Um, I don't think that federal acquisition requirements is ever going to go away. But in order for us to tap into the true power of OTAs, uh, like we did in the space race and with COVID-19, we need to find creative uses of this flexible authority, train up a workforce that includes your contracting officers, your lawyers, your program managers, and your senior leaders, that this is a co-equal option with the federal acquisition requirements, and creatively experiment with the authority and the methodologies to ensure that the basic tenets of public procurement remain in place and that we're able to execute um, with this authority to achieve national objectives
1: all right thank you very much jason for being on the program
0: thank you for having me
1: you can find a link to jason and his team's work at govmatters.tv resources Up next, 14 newly identified cyber vulnerabilities could affect critical systems. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how federal IT leaders can protect that infrastructure and fight back. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Fourteen new cyber vulnerabilities that cyber firm Forescout identified put critical federal infrastructure at risk. Those vulnerabilities could affect the security of online government systems. Rita Foster is infrastructure advisor at the Idaho National Laboratory. Rita, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: How are those vulnerabilities identified?
3: Well, we're partnered with Forescout on a project called Firmware Command and Control, funded by the Department of Energy. For Scouts working with other entities as well to understand the vulnerabilities for the communications that go on between these different end devices that represent the industrial internet of things. They discovered the, they provided us a heads up on what those vulnerabilities are. We use our binary analysis, our structured threat work that we're doing to analyze those vulnerabilities and understand that those vulnerabilities are not, those 14 vulnerabilities for InfraHalt is not the only thing. There's actually a whole series of vulnerabilities that we're able to model and understand how to protect against. So then
1: why should IT managers at federal agencies be concerned about these 14 vulnerabilities? What, what could happen?
3: What could happen with infra halt alone, what can happen is that an end device could have a distributed denial of service or a denial of service to that piece of equipment. They could also have interruptions in the communication between those devices. These vulnerabilities always change. The exploit capabilities always change. So you don't know what's gonna happen in the future. That's why it's important to look at it more holistically with other communication vulnerabilities associated with these end devices to understand the better protections that you can provide.
1: OK, but are these vulnerabilities found in systems that support critical infrastructure that the federal government either regulates or has their own systems directly connected to? I mean, could this affect our water supply? Could this affect our our energy grid?
3: Yes, these vulnerabilities are in critical infrastructure. A preliminary analysis of the Shodan results show that these vulnerabilities exist in many places um, in the United States, in Canada, And There will be be cross-architecture. They are associated with the major control system vendors, um, but that's very similar to these other vulnerabilities as well. The big issue here is that most IT managers do not have this small little communication protocol stack libraries inside their asset inventory, so they kind of miss that in their normal cybersecurity defenses.
1: So what about federal contractors? What What about these vulnerabilities in their systems? Because that could put federal systems at risk as well.
3: They, they can. I mean, vulnerabilities are just vulnerabilities. Uh, they have to be exploited. They have many vulnerabilities that are exploited have to go together for malware for a targeted attack. So a vulnerability doesn't immediately mean oh, they're gonna have a distributed denial of service. There was some activities done with ForeScout and others to prove out some of these exploits for vulnerabilities. But to get from a vulnerability to an actual impact does take more steps, which provides more time for the cyber defender. The contractors, the federal owners of critical infrastructure need to pay attention to these these small vulnerabilities on these small protocol stacks because they're very rarely monitored for these networks. Um, very rarely are they included, like I said, in the cybersecurity um, management. So they are very critical. It's a, it's a place where our adversaries know that they are not being monitored. And uh, we're open. We, we have exposure with these. So give me an example.
1: Um, give me a doomsday scenario of one of these vulnerabilities being exploited. What, what happens? How does it play out?
3: Some of the er earlier vulnerabilities, we've been tracking Urgent 11, Ripple 20, Amnesia 33, Numberjack, Namewreck, and InfraHalt. We've been working with these technology providers like Forescout, Splunk, Fortinet, Eclipsium. And we've been able to see um, that these companies are actually building um, detection and also mitigation areas. So at least there's guidance. I wanted to say that before I go into doomsday. But some of these earlier vulnerabilities their exploit potential has remote code execution which is always a red flag for cyber defenders because that means you can run some malware and it'll do whatever you want it to do and on a little device that malware can run or it can just have a persistence that it can hide and then transfer and and go move through the networks back to a bigger system where they may have larger impact like a federal system like a more of a control type of environment, like a supervisory control and data acquisition or a, or a larger distributed um, control system that would have a, a large area of like distribution control and electric grid or water supply or other activities.
1: So what can federal IT leaders do to protect themselves from these vulnerabilities in specific? What do they need to be doing right now?
3: The partnerships with their integrators, with their original equipment manufacturers are key. Uh, There's a big thing about supply chain vulnerabilities and supply chain management. It's really hard to have supply chain management if you're missing the key communications between the end devices that do the status and control of critical infrastructure. So having those partnerships, and again, we're seeing a maturity in these third-party technology providers where they're providing great tools to help you with detection to see if you have that vulnerability, if you have that exposure, and also provide really good courses of action. Hopefully, a lot of these systems are behind segmented networks that have authorized users only onto that network. That provides a lot of protection. But still, that information and those asset lists have to be updated with these small protocols that are normally ignored or just, you know, and include filed someplace during implementation and forgot about.
1: Thank you so much for being on the program. I appreciate it. All right. Don't forget if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes.